You're listening to The 66, a podcast where we go through the books of the Bible one at a time. In a three-step process, we read, think, and apply the biblical text. And today we are in our fourth episode on the prophecy of Jeremiah. Last week we had a really interesting study on the object lessons from Jeremiah, things that give you a very vivid image of what exactly Jeremiah was trying to preach about the depravity of Israel, just how far they had fallen, and the punishment that was to come. And this week we have another, we're only going to look at one sermon this week, one um, scenario, one scene, that we're going to see in chapter 26 and also in chapters 7 through 11. And we made mention in the first episode, and we've made a small mention in the episodes following, that Jeremiah doesn't necessarily go in chronological order all the way uh, through the book. There are chapters that come in uh, in such a way that doesn't lend itself to a chronological outline. And today we're going to see that occur. In the occurrence that we see in chapter 7, he's going to start a sermon in the temple, and that is parallel to what we read in chapter 26 as well. And what we want to do is kind of look at this whole scene. It's been called the Temple Sermon. Uh, We're calling it the Sanctuary Sermon. And we're going to look at the scene of what's going on here. And then we're going to look at the text of the sermon as well as the reaction of the people of Israel. And so we're going to get started today in chapter 26 and verse 1. Yeah, before we get started, I want to be clear that what, you know, while the book itself does not lend itself to a chronological outline. That's what you said. What we mean is you can't start with chapter 1 and say this is the earliest chapter and end in chapter 52 and say this is the last chapter. But we are trying on the 66 to put together a somewhat chronological outline of the book of Jeremiah. That being the only way we know how to make sense of the material in an outline form. Right. I mean, you know, like last week was obviously all over the timeline because we tied that together as object lessons. But today we get back on the timeline, and that's why we're skipping around because we're trying to keep everything that goes together together. And I'll show you in a minute how 26 does tie in with chapter 7. But uh, let's begin reading. And another thing I can say about the way we're outlining this is Chapters 7 through 11 are the sermon, basically. Chapter 6 is the story behind the sermon. And so we're going to put the sermon in, we're going to plug it in where it goes among the narrative of chapter 26. And uh, chapter 26 begins saying it is in the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. And, uh, you know, when we started this, we started out with the first few verses of the book of Jeremiah and all of those kings that he worked through. And this is the third in the list. We had Josiah, of course, who was a friend of Jeremiah, a contemporary of his. He was cut down way too soon. He was doing good things for the kingdom and listening to the preaching of Jeremiah. And afterwards, his son Jehoahaz was put on the throne but he was removed immediately, or you know, three months after he got to the throne by Egypt, taken to Egypt where he died. In his place, Jehoiakim reigned, and that's who we're looking at right now. Uh, he was the king of Judah, and this word came from the Lord. Now look at verse 2. Thus says the Lord, 
Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord. All the words that I command you to speak to them, do not hold back a word. Now, just to pause here, compare that with chapter 7, verse 2, which is what we're flipping back and forth to. In chapter 7, verse 2, the Lord says to Jeremiah, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim this word. So both of these sermons are given on the steps of the temple, as it were. And so we tie them together as the same thing. That's why we're looking at 26 and and chapter 7 in the same way. The time in which they are set, you know, at the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, maybe his first year, maybe just early in his reign. And then both of them are commissioned at the steps of the temple. He was supposed to give it in that specific place. And it's obvious why, I think, people were coming to worship there, Uh, There was the symbol of the temple there, and we'll see an argument that's made in a moment that he is going to refute. But uh, let's look at verse 3. It may be that they will listen, and everyone turn from his evil way, that I, this is God speaking, may relent of the disaster that I intend to do to them because of their evil deeds. So again, you see the mercy of God in this book full of wrath. Um, It's just amazing to see that he's giving them another opportunity after all that they have done to amend their ways. In other words, repent of what they've done. Now flip back to chapter 7 and we start to get the sermon. I'm going to just summarize it as quickly as I can. In verse 3, you have this repetition of what had been commissioned. Uh, Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. And then in verse 8 he says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. You know, this is the argument that I was referring referring to. I skipped a verse up there in verse 4 where he says the deceptive words are, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Evidently... You know, the critics of Jeremiah were saying, there's no way God will destroy his temple. His temple is holy. It is his dwelling place. As long as we live around this temple, we can do whatever we want, and nothing's going to happen to us. God may have destroyed the northern tribes, but they didn't have the temple. We have the temple. And Jeremiah says, why don't you look at where the first tabernacle was, the first place of Mm-hmm. Holy worship, Shiloh. Where's yeah. that? How how are things going with the people up in that place? And so he shows them that their logic is all wrong. Um, let's go back to chapter 26 now. Imagine that sermon has been given at the temple steps. And here is the response that Jeremiah receives from the people. This is chapter 26, picking up with verse 7. And uh, the priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. You see how nicely that fits together? 
you know, God says, go, go preach. And then we read what he preached, and we go back to chap- chapter 26, and it says, they heard him speaking those in the house of the Lord. And when Jeremiah had finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, then the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him, saying, You shall die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house shall be like Shiloh? That's exactly what we read in chapter 7. And this city shall be desolate without inhabitant. And all the people gathered around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. So you have the accusations made, and they're made sadly by the priests and the prophets. So the officials of Judah gather together. Uh, They come up to the new gate of the house of the Lord. That's where decisions were made. It's kind of like the courthouse. Mm -hmm. And verse 11 says, The priests and the prophets said to the officials, and these officials are like representatives of the king, I take it. You know, that's how I distinguish them from the priests and the prophets. Uh, The priests and the prophets were the holy men or the religious establishment of the city. The officials were like the political leaders of the city. The judges and... Yeah, verse 10 says they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord. So they were in the king's house. So I think that idea of them being with the king is uh, definitely evidence there in verse 10. So they they want to address this charge that Jeremiah needs to be put to death. And in verse 12, Jeremiah makes his defense. The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and the city all the words that you have heard. Now, therefore, mend your ways and your deeds. He just repeats the sermon again. And obey the voice of the Lord your God, and the Lord will relent of the disaster that he has pronounced against you. But as for me, behold, I am in your hands. Do with me as seems good and right to you. Only know for certain that if you put me to death, you will bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon the city and its inhabitants. For in truth, the Lord sent me to you to speak all these words in your ears." So the officials get together and they say this to the priests and the prophets. This is verse 16. This man does not deserve the sentence of death, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. And certain of the elders of the land arose and spoke to all the assembled people, saying, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Did Hezekiah king of Judah and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? But we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. So, um, you know, this is the official's decision. And uh, after that... You have something we're not sure about. I mean, either this is a response to the officials, another you know story that is recalled, like the one about Micah the prophet, or it is something that actually happened. I, I'm not sure. I think that it's kind of the accusers bringing up another story about another prophet. But verse 20 tells us about this prophet Uriah, son of Shemaiah from Kiriath-Jerim, He prophesied against the city and this land in words like those of Jeremiah. And when King Jehoiakim, with all his warriors and all the officials, heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Uriah heard of it, he was afraid and fled and escaped to Egypt. Then King Jehoiakim sent to Egypt certain men, Elnathan, son of Akbar, 
and others with him. And they took Uriah from Egypt and brought him to King Jehoiakim, who struck him down with the sword and dumped his dead body into the burial place of the common people. Now, I lean towards this being, well, I'm not sure where I am. Uh, You know, it sounds like maybe something the accusers bring up as a counterpoint to the story the officials remembered about Micah, Mm -hmm. which seems to get Jeremiah off the hook. They say, well, you know, we've we've killed prophets before. This is what we're wanting to do again. But since this is early in the reign of Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakim is the one who kills this guy, it could be inserted here into the narrative to tell us how dangerous things really were for Jeremiah. Right. I'm Um, more inclined to lean in that direction rather than this being a response from the people. Because usually, you know, anytime... Uh, in Hebrew, you've got, you know, it's usually pretty plain when someone else starts talking. You know, say, and he said, or and they said, or we said, I said, whatever. Well, and so, not, not in Jeremiah, though. I would be... I, there's an example I'll bring up later in yeah. this lesson where it's really hard to tell who's talking, but okay. I'm following you. So, I, I just think here in this kind of exchange between a group of people and the officials that you would have some sort of marker of uh, and they said or they replied yeah. or they returned because then also in verse 24 you know it just says but the hand of Ahikam the son of Shaphan was with Jeremiah so then we could make all the same arguments for verse 24 that we make for verse 20, that this is a response from the people. Right, and, and we wouldn't take it that way. Right. So, yeah. But so I, I your, your position, you think this is something that happened like right around the time of Jeremiah to illustrate to us how dangerous things were for prophets in general. Right, and also within that, I think you can kind of see what kind of king Jehoiakim is also. <laughs> And if you want to, yeah, he's a bad guy. Yeah, Hezekiah fears the Lord and says, oh, we need to change our ways. Jehoiakim just kills the prophet. (laughs) And if you live in in an area that's um, ruled by monarchs, don't name your kid Uriah. Just seems like a bad idea. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Reading some of these Bible stories, you know, David killed Uriah. Yeah. Jehoiakim killed Uriah. Just not, you know. Pick a new name. Yeah, does, let's not go with Uriah. Um, but one thing I'll, I'll bring out here. So we have the reaction here, and we have this part of the sermon that we've read. There's really not a good way to tell. From chapter 7 through 11 is really what we're going to use, or what we're going to call the the temple sermon, or this, uh, this uh, sanctuary sermon, as we've called it. All these things can, can go together as this sermon. There's really no way to tell exactly how much of that was delivered uh, if we're looking at the Before the trial and after right. the trial. Yeah. 26 is kind of the historical uh, narrative of what happened. 7 through 11 is like the text of the sermon. And we don't know how much of 7 through 11 will fit in uh, right there between verses 6 and 7 of 26. Uh, it's very possible, though, that the, the full content of 7 through 11 was delivered. It's also possible that portions of it were delivered. Uh, yeah. There's really no exact scientific way, I guess, of proving one way or the other. Uh, but just know that 
it's possible that this entire sermon that we're about to go through, and you've got some verses for us to look at uh, mm-hmm. to kind of sum up the message here, but it's possible that they had heard every last bit of this sermon that we're about to uh, discuss here. Prior to the priests and prophets trying to put him to death. Right. Yeah. Well, that's one way of looking at it, and I, I agree with you that that's possible. But I also see something interesting, an interesting shift in chapter 7 that appears to come after the trial and the rejection of the people, the rejection of Jeremiah's message. And um, it it appears to comprise a response from God. The Lord says, because everything from 7.16 on is the Lord responding to Jeremiah about the people's rejection of this message. Look at verse 16, for example. As for you, do not pray for this people, or lift up a cry or prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. So, it, it you know, in verse 15, it seems to be the end of the sermon. I'll cast you out of my side. I'll cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. And then, you know, just imagine chapter 26 happening, and then the Lord after Jeremiah gets back from the court and he almost dies, the Lord comes to him and says, don't pray for him. I won't yeah. listen to you if you pray for him. Don't, yeah. I don't want to hear it. Do not intercede. Do not do the Abraham thing. Do not do the Moses thing. It's too late for this group of people. And he's going to say it again in chapter 11. Yeah, he 14. says this several times. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the only way to really cover all this material in a timely fashion is just pull out highlights. So that's what I'm going to do with the rest of this response from God. Look down at uh, chapter 7, verse 21. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. You know, usually, with the exception of um, certain sacrifices, the sacrifices were to be burnt up totally. Mm -hmm. And he's saying, why don't you just go ahead and cook them and eat them on the grill? You know, just do it that way because they're totally meaningless. Yeah, Your heart is not behind your worship. Right. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, of course, in the law of Moses, that came later, but the day they came out, he wasn't concerned so much about sacrifice as he was obedience. Right. He said, this is the command that I gave them. Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. I thought that was an interesting highlight. Um, Let's go to chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 6, the Lord said, I have paid attention and listened, but they have not spoken rightly. No man relents of his evil, saying, What have I done? Everyone turns to his own course like a horse plunging headlong into battle. Even the stork in the heavens knows their times, and the turtle dove, swallow, and crane keep the time of their coming, but my people do not know the rules of the Lord. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us, but behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie? I just like the poetry of that, and it also brings out Another theme that's reiterated many, many times in this sermon, the lying pen of the scribes. Right. You know, 
what is it that they repeated? And this is in Jeremiah a lot, where that something is said three times. You know, I think mm-hmm. we've seen, and, and this is in the sermon too, but we've seen it before in chapter six. Peace, peace. And right. uh, here, you know, we saw um, we have the temple, we have the temple, we have the temple, mm-hmm. and that's a lie. And uh, the Lord wants to make that very clear. Now, you know, I was talking about how it's unclear sometimes of Jeremiah who is speaking. When you get to the end of chapter 8, that's um, one of those cases. Because it seems like after hearing this response of God, Jeremiah has a very visceral reaction. Uh, Verse 18 of chapter 8, he says, My joy is gone, grief is upon me, my heart is sick within me. Behold the cry of the daughter of my people from from the length and breadth of the land. It, it's like he's looking out into the future and he sees all the devastation that is coming. Mm-hmm. And that is what he's weeping about. Not the present time. Right. And then, and then it, it seems that he is imagining the people speaking in this next line in verse 19. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? So it seems like that's something that Judah is saying. And then you have God talking. Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? And then back to the people. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. And then Jeremiah, verse 21. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn and dismay has taken hold on me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? And I think this flows well into chapter 9. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. And this is why Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. Mm-hmm. These verses here are a good example of that. Um, so I, that's the only way I can make any sense of the end of chapter 8 is to imagine different speakers there, despite the fact that you know, it doesn't say, and God said, and yeah. then Judah said. Um, you know, maybe all of this is in Jeremiah's imagination or in his sermon or his speech, mm-hmm. but you have to assign different speakers to it for it to make any sense. And there are quotation marks in my translation that kind of help with that, but yeah, it's still a little difficult to work out. Um, I found this next part in chapter 9 interesting also, verses 2 through 6. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go away from them. This is Jeremiah talking. For they are all adulterers, a company of treacherous men. They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and truth has grown strong in the land, and they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone beware of his neighbor, and put no trust in any brother, for every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor, and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression, and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. It's Jeremiah and the Lord are so close that one speaks for the other. You know, he says declares the Lord a couple of times here, but these are Jeremiah's thoughts, but they are self-same with the Lord's thoughts. And um, that's why I found that compelling right. in chapter 9. And I think that kind of answers some of these 
things. Well, who's talking here, Jeremiah or God? We mentioned that a while back. Uh, was in our second episode, I believe. We were trying to figure out if God was saying he was upset or if Jeremiah was saying he's upset. And I think, you know, with some of these things, like you mentioned at the end of chapter 8, you know, who's talking or who's saying what or this and that and the other. Is it Jeremiah or is it God? You know, I think there's... I think what you just mentioned kind of makes that kind of really a non-issue. Is it God? Is it Jeremiah? Well, we don't really know, but it doesn't matter. You know? Yeah. Uh, that's... Except for clarity of understanding no. Jeremiah's... What no. what Jeremiah is saying, it, it doesn't. You know, there are some points where the people are speaking where I think it's really important to identify that so you don't get that confused mm-hmm. with the righteous speech of Jeremiah and God. Right. When it's between Jeremiah or the Lord, it really doesn't matter. But between Jeremiah and Jehoiakim, or between Jeremiah and the people, it it matters big time uh, to the understanding. Let's go over to chapter 10. Um, It begins with a, and I love this in the prophets. You see it in Isaiah a lot. You see it in Jeremiah. This mockery of idol worship. Mm -hmm. Um, Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. That's one image that's going to stay with me. Yeah. You know, it's just a good one. And they cannot speak. They have to be carried for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. And the rest of the chapter is like that. But uh, Mm -hmm. you're really interesting sarcasm. And I was was criticized one time for using sarcasm in an article. And um, I asked the person who criticized me if they had ever read... The prophets, mm-hmm. because you know, or Paul, yeah. because there's a lot of sarcasm and critical speech, you know, in yeah. in these prophecies. Uh, we have to mention chapter ten, verse twenty-three. I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself; that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. And then over in chapter eleven, you have. God recalling the covenant that he had made with his people and his faithfulness to that and their unfaithfulness to it. Hear the words of the covenant and speak to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant that I commanded your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Listen to my voice and do all that I command you. So shall you be my people, and I will be your God, that I may confirm the oath that I swore to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is this day. Then I answered, So be it, Lord. And then, you know, the chapter ends with this beautiful statement of faithfulness on the part of Jeremiah. He says, I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not know it was against me they devised schemes, saying, Let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be remembered no more. But, O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them. 
for to you have I committed my cause. And we'll stop the reading there with that statement of loyalty from Jeremiah to the Lord. And we'll see, we've already seen his testing. We'll see many more examples that are yet to come. Okay, so now we're going to get into the part of the podcast where we think a little bit deeper about a few things that interest us that we're going to pull out of the text. And the first thing that we want to bring out is this mention of the place called Shiloh that God refers, uh, he says, remember the place Shiloh. Pretty much ask them, uh, do you remember what's going on, what happened to the place? You read this in verse 12 of chapter 7. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it, because of all the evil of my people Israel. So obviously they're making the point, you think the house of the Lord is safe because my name dwells here. Well, what do you think about Shiloh? Do you remember what happened to Shiloh? Now it's interesting to note that we don't read anywhere in the New Testament about the actual historical occurrence of Shiloh being wiped out. Now, we have some references to it, but there's no uh, passage that says, and the king of so-and-so came in with his troops and wiped out Shiloh, and X amount of people died, and this and that and the other. Uh, We do have uh, some records here. Have you mentioned, you know, like the history of Shiloh? Uh, Shiloh, Joshua 18.1 and 1 Samuel 1.3, I was getting there, mention it as the resting place of the ark. Yeah, I mean, it was basically just the first place where they had the ark and the right. and the tabernacle, the first major mm-hmm. place of worship that the people traveled to to celebrate the the big holy days. Um, and this, like you said, goes all in the promised land, and this mm-hmm. goes all the way back to Joshua. Yeah, uh, Joshua eighteen one. The whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. This is where the Ark of the Covenant would have been. And the Ark of the Covenant at the time was where the name of God was, I guess, in the terms that we're talking about here. His presence dwelt between the cherubim on the mercy seat. Right. Right. And so that was the thing. They had to make sure they had that in battle when that was taken from them. It was a horrible horrible thing. Um, well, and, I, and I think that's what he's referring to here is what mm-hmm. you just said, um, which is First Samuel chapter 4, I think, um, where, like you said, you were saying that there's no place where we read about how Shiloh was just destroyed. I don't think it ever had a bullseye on it because it, you know, it wasn't until David solidified Israel and built the capital in Jerusalem that Nations started taking Israel seriously, and you know had had places to uh, bomb. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't have bombs, but uh, you know to attack and siege mm-hmm. and do all of that. And so uh, it didn't get destroyed in that fashion. But you know all this horrible stuff happened in First Samuel four, where the ark was stolen by the Philistines, right. and then the 
Philistines uh, had some bad times with the ark, so they tried to return it. Then some guys, uh, then Eli was at Shiloh when he heard that the ark had been stolen. He fell backwards and broke his neck. And yeah. uh, then some men, this wasn't at Shiloh, but it was because of Shiloh that these men looked into the ark and died of a right. plague. And So there was, the Lord was not afraid to let the ark of the covenant be captured was not afraid to allow Eli to die in the fashion he died, was not afraid to allow the Philistines to win a battle for a large population of his people to be destroyed by a plague because of the way they mishandled the ark. Right. Uh, That has to be the kind of thing that he's referencing when he says, do you remember what I did at Shiloh? Yeah. Uh, Now there is, we do have uh, Psalm 78.60 also, along with these passages in Jeremiah, records God's, I guess, abandonment, really, of the city, uh, for lack of a better term. Uh, But there's, I was wondering if you'd heard anything about this, uh, this commentary I've been reading, some archaeological evidence that indicates that the Philistines actually carried out the destruction of Shiloh in 1050 B.C. Have you heard anything on that? No. That's the first I've ever heard of it. Um, I'm not surprised, because when Shiloh was in operation... The Philistines were the main enemy, mm-hmm. so it makes they were the sense. ones that took the ark. Yeah, in First Samuel chapter four, so they were the thorn in their sides uh, until David and Solomon, you know, right? Saul, David, and Solomon, they kind of uh, struck a fatal blow to the Philistines, right? And the point here being. Shiloh is just very interesting from what it was. First uh, Samuel chapter one verse three that we mentioned talks about uh, the high priests. Uh, that includes Phineas and some of the other men you mentioned earlier. Uh, they go up to the place of the Lord at Shiloh to offer sacrifices. So that is, I guess, if there was a temple back in First Samuel time, that's it was represented by the ark, which would have been at Shiloh. Um, it's a proto Jerusalem, right? And, you know, it was in the north, which is gone by this point. Right. You know, um, what what happened is that the kingdom was divided due to the sins of Solomon's son Rehoboam and the sins of his father Solomon also. When the kingdom was divided, the ten tribes went with Israel in the north and two tribes stayed in the south with Judah, which is all that's left at this point in Jeremiah. Well, the disadvantage that Jeroboam, who was the new king of the northern kingdoms, had was he didn't have the temple. So he created these places of worship, but he did it, they were idol worship. They weren't true worship. Mm -hmm. So in order to illustrate this to uh, the people of Jeremiah, God had to find a place of worship in the north that had been destroyed uh, by the Assyrians, and it had to be a place of true worship. Right, and the only real candidate for that was Shiloh. I guess there were some others like Gilgal. Yeah, which I don't know. I need to check my map. Gilgal may have been in the south as well. Most of the places were in the south. I think it was. I think Gilgal was in the south actually. Ramah, you know, south. Uh, uh, Anathoth, south. So mm-hmm. uh, Shiloh was one of the rare places of worship in the north. And it was important to point that out because it reminded them not only of Shiloh, but of the whole ten tribes that were just gone. 
Right. You know, they call them the lost ten tribes of Israel. They they never made it back. They were assimilated into the population of other captive people and eventually became the Samaritans who were hated mm-hmm. by the Jews. Right. And so that that's the point that is being made here. Don't hide behind the temple because God's not afraid to bring destruction of, even upon his own holy places yeah. to punish his people. Yeah, what the things that made that place holy have now it's been defiled. And that's the whole point of what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah. Starting there. You've defiled the place, it's not holy anymore, so I'm gonna just get rid of it. Yeah. Uh similar to the whole illustration of his people. They're not holy anymore. Let's get rid of them. The salt has lost its saltiness. Uh now the next thing I want to ask you about is in verse 11. We mentioned this um, in our little break we took in between. Uh, This mention of the house of God, verse 11 actually says, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers? And that's a familiar phrase from the New Testament. Yeah, we know it from Jesus' cleansing of the temple the second time. Not the Mm -hmm. occurrence in John chapter 2, but he quotes this passage from Matthew 21, in Matthew 21, verse 13, in Mark's account, Mark 11, verse 17. And, uh, you know, this is one case where the quotation really fits the original context nicely. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus quoted this knowing the kind of um, corruption that had occurred in Solomon's temple. Now he's in the temple that had been constructed by Zerubbabel and then added on to by Herod the Great. Mm -hmm. And he is in that temple, the second temple. Some some people refer to it as third temple because of the remodeling that Herod did. Mm -hmm. And he's in that temple, and he's cleaning it out, and he's saying this is as bad as it was in the days of Jeremiah. He's acting as Jeremiah. You know, Jeremiah, this is a part of a sermon that Jeremiah gave in the temple or on the steps of the temple, and Jesus is preaching in the temple. So I, I think it's really interesting how it, dovetails together in that way. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting symmetry there between their message and then also their historical context. Um, And the fact that they are there to cleanse what the people of Israel have defiled. And also, when you even Mm -hmm. add on to, if you continue on in chapter 7, the mention he makes there of the sacrifices uh, that you covered in the previous section, but the problem that you mentioned was, you know, they were doing the sacrifices, but they didn't mean anything. And yeah. That's why I said to them, "Go ahead and just eat it." You know, you're not yeah. you're not supposed to eat these burnt offerings, but you might as well because you're basically just grilling out mm-hmm. when you offer these sacrifices. Have a barbecue. Yeah, and I mean, what's going on? I know that's not the context in Matthew 21, but you know, the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 21 are guilty of the exact same thing. Uh, you know that's what Jesus, when he gives his, when he gives them that sermon, the seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees in chapter twenty-three. You know, is it not the same heart of the matter here? They're worshiping with their lips, but their heart is far from them or from God. Uh, they are doing these things on the outside, but the inside, they're not truly worshiping. So I think you know you even have similar issues with the people of Israel, not the exact same, but similar issues with. They are performing the letter of the law, but not for the right reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, one last thing I wanted to bring up is from the narrative in chapter 26 that we, we've been working on. You know, the really interesting thing where the officials, and this is rare for Jeremiah, 
the officials actually come on the side of Jeremiah. It's one of the bright points of the book. Mm-hmm. They recall a prophet named Micah. And I'm sure our listeners, when we read over that, wondered, is this the Micah that we have the prophecy of in the canon of the Old Testament? I believe that it is. And, you know, the reason we know for sure that it is is because they remember something that he said. And this is in uh, verse, well, verse 18. Uh, Micah prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height which is similar to Jeremiah's message. That's an exact quotation, unless I'm mistaken, of Micah chapter 3, verse 12. So, um, you know, we know this is the Micah of the Old Testament canon, and he lived about 100 years before Jeremiah, but some had recalled the prophecy. And I'm told that this is the only occasion in which a prophet is quoted within prophecy. In other words, you know, Jesus quoted the prophets quite often. The apostles quoted the prophets. Maybe you'll have some quotations of prophets over in the books of history of the Old Testament. But this is the only time when a prophet quotes a prophet. Right here in uh, Jeremiah twenty-six eighteen, And that's significant because, you know, you're weighing the scriptures and you're looking at the books of scriptures and you're seeing do they regard one another as scripture. I think that's as important as asking, did the people of the time regard it as Scripture? Mm-hmm. I'm reminded of uh, Peter, you know, talking about Paul's writings in Second Peter three, fifteen. He refers to Paul's writings as Scripture. That's kind of yeah. the same thing that we're seeing here when Jeremiah... I mean, he's... In the story, the officials are quoting it, but Jeremiah wrote this down. Mm-hmm. And he's quoting Micah as Scripture. So it's right. really significant and important for us to notice that not to mention just just interesting to yeah. point out I just want to bring this up just to, I mean I probably shouldn't but I'm going to ask anyway <laughs> John the Baptist okay. do we count John the Baptist as a prophet yeah this definitely really doesn't matter at all but yeah it does John the Baptist sure. quotes Isaiah okay. in John 1 23 so there's a prophet quoting another prophet. I don't know if that. Yeah, but it's in the New Testament. Yeah, right. You're right. I think that's not prophecy. That's a, in the gospel. Yeah, that's the gospel. I'm I'm talking in yeah, terms of. We can of, give it a loophole there. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, Jesus was a prophet. Yeah. So yeah, that's right. That's right. So what I meant was when I said prophecy. Yeah, the book of prophecy is the only. Yeah, I meant the genre of literature. Got it. Okay, so Andrew, the Old Testament is broken up into. Different literary Five styles. Different styles. Are you gonna? Yes. Oh, great. No. Uh, <laughs> I hope my teachers from. No, I'm not gonna ask you. I no. just. I, I thought I might educate Five you on this. Prophecy is definitely one of them. Yeah. Uh, Very have, good. Yeah. History. Yes. Prophecy. Wisdom. No. Wisdom. That's poetry. One of big. Okay. Poetry. Okay. Well, I just want po- poetry. Yeah. Poetry and wisdom. wisdom same, all same. that stuff's in with wisdom. And you got the. History. Pentateuch or the Pentateuch, law. Yeah. law, law, history, poetry, law, history, poetry, prophecies, prophets. and and the prophets are divided into two parts. Major and minor. Very good. Andrew. Yeah, <laughs> got it. Nailed it. <laughs> that's a ninety. But that's that's what I meant. Is in those seventeen books of prophecy, the major prophets yeah. and minor prophets. There's only one time where 
Now they quote like they'll quote law. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll quote law of Moses or maybe a history book. But this is the only time that they quote themselves. Right. And you know, the reason that that's rare is because many of them were contemporaries. You know, like Daniel, we talked about how Daniel, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel all lived during the same time. Right. So they didn't have access to one another's work. Mm-hmm. But Micah preceded Jeremiah by a hundred years, so he had access to Micah. That about does it for uh, Think, and we got a lot of practical applications, so we want to save some time for that. Let's take a little break. We'll be right back. We have several things that we want to apply from the sanctuary sermon or the temple sermon that Jeremiah gives in chapter 26 and also chapter 7 through 11. Something that we've kind of touched on before that gets brought out a little more clearly here in this sermon is the hypocrisy of the people of Israel. Or really, I guess, just they're, they're called stupid and foolish, as we've already covered, and I think you can see that really come to light in some very specific ways here. And I only want to bring up two of them because I think we can be guilty of them uh, just as much today. Chapter 7, verses 9 and 10 is a great example of what you see a lot of folks doing now. This is verse 9. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is also called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. I think all of us have got, we have some experience with either ourselves or people that we know that, you know, on the during the week or, uh, here's, here's a great example. On a Saturday night, uh, I'm still pretty fresh out of college. I can still remember on Saturday nights, folks go into, uh, you know, places they shouldn't have gone, doing things they shouldn't do, uh, spending the night in places on Saturday night that they should not. And then Sunday morning, being in the worship service, being in a Bible class, and, you know, talking about how it was wrong to do those very things that they had just been doing. Or, you know, it's, it's sort of what you see with these people is they're calling on the name of the Lord when they're refusing to follow the Lord. Yeah. And obviously there's some hypocrisy in that and the I mean, can they expect it's a Jekyll and Hyde thing. Right. You know, the Mr. Hyde is out on the weekends and then you know, Jekyll comes in and does his good work. But right. you know, it was part of their culture as well, which is a, a polytheistic culture that was comfortable holding two deities side by side. Right. And you know, the God of Israel was unique in that he would not share his glory with anyone else. And mm-hmm. so uh, I think they were kind of just mimicking the nations around them rather than being God's peculiar people. Right. And I think, obviously, the the application that, that comes to us right now is, you know, if we want to be able to say, if we want to be able to stand in the house of God, which we uh, read in Corinthians, you know, our temple... Is, or our body is a temple of the living God. The church 
is the body of Christ, if we want to be able to stand within those things and say we are delivered, just like the Israelites make the claim in verse 10, then we're going to have to make sure that we are following God. You know, we're just going to have to be a type of of true discipleship, not one just on the surface, not one just on certain days, uh, but something that really permeates every part of our life, and some it's something that we are, not something that we do. Certainly, we could spend a lot more time talking about that, but I'll move on to the next point of hypocrisy that you see with um, the Israelites here. Verse 8 of chapter 8. How can you say, We are wise, and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. Uh, there's a couple things here that we could get into, such as, you know, what's going on with the scribes? Are they Are they corrupting the word of God? But rather than get into all that, I want to look at the point of these people are saying the law of the Lord is with us, but they don't even know what the law of the Lord is. Yeah. And I think, you know, that can be a really easy thing for us to fall into as well. You know, we so many times we feel so very confident in the beliefs that we have, but a lot of times we don't weigh those beliefs against Scripture. There'll be things that we have taught, that we have been taught since we were young. There'll be things that make sense in our head. Uh, you know, they kind of fit into the scheme of morality uh, or of righteousness or truth, whatever that we have. But we never really weigh them according to Scripture. And, you know, everybody thinks that they are not guilty of this. But I think we all need to be very careful to be fair minded and approaching Scripture with an attitude of, you know, being there to learn what the Bible yeah. has to say, not just to prove everything that we think. Yeah, and you think about how easy it was for them to defend, I'm talking about these lying scribes, to defend their position. Because what was their position? The Lord will bring peace. The right. temple is holy. The Lord will protect His holy temple. The Lord will not allow harm to come to His people. The Lord's people are special. Now, could we find a proof text for all of those positions in the Old Testament scriptures? Oh, certainly. Definitely could, and that's what they were doing. We do the same thing today. We decide what we want to be the case, then we go and find something out of context or that doesn't apply to the particular thing we're in, and we'll throw that out as our proof text. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's hypocrisy. And I love how both of these examples you found start with the phrase, How can you say? Because that that's what hypocrisy is. How can you say? Right. Hypocrisy is two disparate things held side by side. How can these two things be together? They can't. You know, mm-hmm. that's the understood answer to that. Right. I certainly think we can learn a lot from the hypocrisy of Israel and the things that they were doing with the Word of God and with God Himself. Yeah. Uh, here's another point that's kind of... Uh, I guess it's not really easy to think about or very pleasant to think about is God's attitude towards his people that we see in chapter 7, verse 16, and 11, verse 14. They both say the same thing. Uh, So I'll just read verse 7, verse 16. Chapter 7, excuse me, in verse 16. This is God talking to Jeremiah. As for you, do not pray for this people, or lift up a cry or a prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. Mm-hmm. 
Now, here again, you can imagine some of the prophets and priests, you know, proof texting and saying, oh, well, God always hears his people. Uh, God never leaves, never forsakes his people. He will always hear our prayer. And now here's God telling Jeremiah, look, don't pray for them because I'm not going to hear it. Yeah. I don't want to hear it. And to me, that's very surprising. It's shocking that God would say, I don't even want you to pray that these people would turn their hearts away from the idols and turn to me. Well, I don't know if that's what he was saying. I, I think he was saying, don't pray for me to save them without their repenting. Okay. Because if he was that saying, don't pray sense. for them to repent, that goes against the basic premise of the sermon, which is amend your ways. Right, that amend makes a Amend your ways. Sense. So... I think it's in the spirit of what John was telling the church in 1 John 5, 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. And you put that, John, you know, says, any sin can be forgiven that's confessed and repented of. That's 1 John 1, 9. That's a sin not leading to death. But if a person is not confessing a sin, not repenting of sin, that's a sin to death. There's no point in praying for that because God is not going to violate his righteousness and rescue somebody who doesn't want rescuing. Right. You know, so I think I think that's what I think he was that's telling ex- Jeremiah. I think you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what the people are guilty of. They have not confessed their sin and they have not repented. And yeah. we saw as much in the in our second episode where we talked about the problem with Israel. They wouldn't confess their sin. God told them, if you will only acknowledge your guilt, I believe in chapter 3, uh, he says just acknowledge your guilt. And then also um, all over the place, he has, this is in chapter 3 and verse 13, that he says just acknowledge your guilt. And uh, he yeah. also tells them to remove their their idols remove their high places, uh, and that obviously is the repentance. So you have the confession and repentance there listed. Uh, so that yeah, that's that definitely explains. So if you read that at first and see, well, this sounds like God is not even entertaining the idea of these people repenting because He says don't pray for them, not mm-hmm. praying for them in the sense of He's not saying don't pray that they change their mind. He's yeah. saying, don't ask me to save them, even though they're not changing their mind. Yeah, yeah. That really spells it out for me. Yeah. Uh, so that answers my question. Uh, the last application I have is the fact that Jeremiah gave the right message in the right place at the right time. He was standing in the temple at a time when people were there. They were worshiping there. And he gave the appropriate message uh, concerning the temple and what was going to happen to it. And I think that's something that we can learn, uh, that that church leaders can learn, uh, that ministers can learn, uh, you know, especially uh, in their preaching and teaching. You know, is this the right context for me to bring up this or this or this? You know, a Sunday morning worship uh, is a great time to bring out a lot of things in study and in a sermon, but, you know, it's also not the place for a lot of other things. Yeah. You know, there are lessons that don't need to be brought in uh, public, in a pulpit, on a Sunday, Um, and then there are lessons that are, and certainly as a parent, I'm sure a lot of our listeners that are parents can, can relate to that, and, you know, there's a good time and a place 
and a good lesson to be delivered for your children, uh, but only within those parameters, I guess. You know, you would, when you're, they're called teachable moments, uh, is what I've heard them. You know, when a child does something, uh, there's an appropriate response to it. Obviously, there's sometimes it's more appropriate to wait until you're in private to approach your child about this or that or the other and discuss it with them. Other times, it's more appropriate to do it in public. I think the point of whether, you know, rather than discussing the ins and outs of when it's appropriate to do this or that, I think it's uh, just worth pointing out here that we should be mindful of making sure that, you know, as we are trying to teach others about Christ, as we are trying to go out and spread the gospel, that we need to be very mindful that we're making sure that we are in the correct place at the correct time with the correct message, making sure we have all three of those. Yeah, there's another um, good application for preaching in chapter 26, verse 2, where he tells him to speak the words that I command you to speak. Do not hold back a word. Sometimes when you're in that right place, time, you're saying the right thing, Mm -hmm. it's it's uncomfortable to say everything. Yeah. So, um, you know, this the whole book of Jeremiah is full of good tips for preachers. I think that, you know, a good thing for, uh, and it probably is taught in a lot of colleges and preacher training schools, but a good class would be the Jeremiah from the perspective of preaching. You know, yeah. um, I think everything you need to know about preaching, practically speaking, is right here in this book. Oh, yeah. But most of our listeners are not preachers, so mm-hmm. we probably need to move on to some other things. I. I like, um, while we're in chapter 26, this idea, um, I'll put it this way, God's mercy is automatic. Look at verse 3, he says, It may be that they will listen, and everyone turn from his evil way, that I may relent of the disaster that I intend to do to them because of their evil deeds. I read that to mean, you know, as soon as they change, I'm stopping this. I'm turning this around as soon as they let me turn it around by repenting of their sins. Right. There's there. It's not automatic and it's not impersonal and robotic, but it behaves that way. Uh, the nature of God behaves in this way because of how infinite all of His attributes are. Uh, we're not accustomed to that. We can bend our morality. We can make compromises. God is not God if he does that kind of thing. So his holiness is kind of like this compass that controls all the rest of his attributes. And he can't turn on his omnipotence and his uh, benevolence in the favor of his people until their repentance allows his holiness to open up those attributes. And right. it's, it's I'm not I'm describing God as a machine, but I don't want anybody to think that I believe that he's a machine. But the way it looks from our um, limited capacities sometimes is that he is mechanical because he's so uh, infinite in all of these ways. I hope I'm not being disrespectful in the way that I'm describing it, but it's just you know there's no question yeah. that if they return. He will immediately turn away from from those things. Right. I think you can contrast that to to where if someone does me wrong, uh, he uses the example of a wife, a husband and wife. You know, if someone, if a wife cheats on her husband, um, and she decides to repent of what she's done, the husband's not necessarily going to bring her back. 
Right. Uh, but you yeah, contrast that to God, God with his people, he will automatically, no matter what, if they call on his name out of a pure and righteous heart, repent, acknowledge their guilt, then he's going to take them back. Yeah, and in case of humans, some, some um, husbands will and some won't. Right. But God will always behave as God. You know, right. Uh, one last one. I wish I had more time to do this one, but people follow their leaders. You know, in chapter 26, the priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking. And then in verse 8, the uh, priests and prophets and all the people laid hold of him, saying, You shall die. The people are complicit with the priests and prophets, even though they are dead wrong, they are not uh, doing the right thing. People follow the leader. Um, you know, there's a song that says, when the people lead, the leaders they will follow. Well, that is wishful thinking. And it happens yeah. on occasions. American Revolution, French Revolution. You know, there's some cases in history where the people lead and the leaders they follow because they're getting their heads cut off or whatever. But most of the time, whatever the leaders are doing, even if it's corrupt, that's what the people do. So in churches, it's really important for us to get godly leaders Right. Uh, you know, there are those pivotal times in churches where elders are being appointed or the preacher is being selected or the deacons are being selected or Bible teachers are being selected. And uh, sometimes we're not as careful about that process as we should be. And then you get a leader in, and even when the people believe maybe that he's making wrong decisions, not doing the right thing, they follow him. They follow him. Right. Because we don't have a good system to rebuke such a person and you know First Timothy 5 17 and 18 goes into that a little bit when it comes to an elder and I'm not just talking about elders here I'm talking about preachers you know it's even hard you, you fire a preacher it sets a church back for years in some cases yeah. even when the preacher needed to be fired because it's just sticky and complicated and so I guess the lesson here is be careful who you follow because you will follow him. Yeah, leaders set the tones. I mean, they set the tone across the board. Just by even just by holding the position. Right. Yeah. Right. Just whoever you have as an elder in your church and as a minister as well, but more so an elder. You know, the their attitude about scripture, the attitude about everything, even down to the clothes they wear. You know, that's how. A lot of folks will say, you know, can I wear this or this shirt? Well, our elders wear jeans. You can wear jeans. You know, yeah. you know, even down to the clothes you wear, something so minute as that. Obviously, with things more important, I think that's going to just about wrap us up for today. Yeah, we are way out of time. We just yeah. noticed it, but uh, we are so grateful to you for tuning in, listening. We're getting a lot of good feedback, uh, and there are a lot of ways to follow us and contact us. Check us out on the web the66.net and stay tuned for our next episode coming up next week. We'll see you then.